Thank you, Pastor, so much. As we uh, give thanks in this season for such a glorious and gracious gift of our Savior. And uh, as I think about in humility how oftentimes when I'm a part of something that things don't go as smoothly as they might. I'm not going to explain to you the how of it, but just please know that the reason we all were reciting different calls to worship was me. Um, There's an explanation, but just know I was a part of that equation and that should explain everything. Years ago, when the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America was meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina, I was asked at the last minute to be uh, one of the ones who served the Lord's Supper, just passing the trays. Gave me a job, couldn't be messed up too badly. And so when the time came, that table was covered nicely with a cloth, and I was asked, my friend Jim Mazzanotti signaled to me, and I knew to stand up and uncover. And I was so proud of myself. There I was, just like my grandfather through all those years as a ruling elder at my home church who would often go up and uncover the Lord's table. And there I was as we were raising the cloth. And unfortunately, I didn't get my side raised quite enough. And you know there's little crosses on top of the lids of those communion trays? Yeah, it it caught on top of one of those crosses. And and that lid didn't just fly off of that tray. It, It hit the ground. And you know what symbols sound like in a symphony when... It was kind of like that, except this one rolled down the aisle and kept ringing as it went. So just know if I'm a part of the equation that a lid is apt to fly off something. And just give thanks that we were actually reciting the same scripture and it was just a different version. So it could have been worse. Our scripture reading today is taken from Micah chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5. Micah 5. I read to you the right thing. It was just the wrong page. Micah 5. So, in this celebration of the coming of our Lord Jesus, His Advent, as we refer to it, we think of these extraordinary prophecies that we have in the Old Testament. Scriptures which I contend every year at this season are taken for granted. The fact that we have specific word concerning the Lord Jesus delivered, communicated centuries before he came. And there is zero probability that these words were written into those Old Testament passages because thanks to the work of archaeology, we actually have texts of Scripture which predate the Lord Jesus' birth. And guess what? These texts, these passages are in those scrolls. They were not inserted later. They have been there all along. And this is extraordinary. Over 300 such prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus, his uh, arrival, his life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and his return after that. All of that foretold in the Old Testament. Unparalleled in all of our human experience. So, Knowing that to be the case, let's read Micah chapter 5. Now, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 and then the first sentence of verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Now muster your troops, O daughter of truth. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure from now. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. So may God bless this reading of his word as we give him praise and thanks for it. An extraordinary arrival. I don't know if you've ever been a part of an extraordinary arrival when somebody that you were waiting for, perhaps it was a concert, perhaps it was a political event, perhaps it was a family member whose flight was delayed or whose transportation caused delay and you're waiting and hoping that they'll get there as I think about being a little boy, waiting for that one cousin who wasn't there yet and we couldn't start eating until he got there. It does wonders for the prayer life of a young child when things like that happen. Just waiting for them to show up, wondering if they are this particular one as he was often known to be inebriated when he was around the rest of the family one of my cousins said yep said he's here he flew in from st louis but he hadn't landed yet (laughs) but robert came to know christ in the latter years of his life and asked me to preach his funeral service and i'll remember rejoicing over his coming to know christ and his having everlasting life because of that gracious gift of god and so here we are Still yet, centuries after the event, after that arrival so long anticipated, thinking back over this wondrous thing that is the coming of the Lord Jesus. As words were given by way of prophecy, the foretelling of an event that had not yet transpired that would take place and has taken place. And yet, there's still fulfillment yet to be realized. The already and the not yet, as theologians speak of it, we already know that Christ has come and yet... He will return, and there is more fulfillment yet to be realized. But, oh, how we rejoice in what has been fulfilled as we see that this prophetic word gives us comfort and the courage to live out our faith, just knowing that the Bible, the Scriptures, are a reliable source of information, not merely a rule book, but a testimony of God's grace and faithfulness throughout generations. That we're not here, and I'm not here today, to tell you a whole bunch of things that you have to do in order to inherit eternal life. I'm here telling you what God has done in the person of His Son, and thus, as a gift, we have everlasting life. That is distinct from every other religion in the world. Not here to tell you what you ought to do, but to proclaim the good news of what God has done in the person of His Son. Are you all depressed today because you woke up this morning and heard the news or read the news and you know how bad it is? Well, fear not. It's worse than they're telling you. But the good news is better than you possibly can imagine. And so this prophetic word gives us encouragement. Though the world is under the curse of sin, we don't need evidence for that. You don't need me to present exhibits A, B, C, and D. We all know that the world is under the curse of sin. We see it everywhere from the fact that there are colds and cancer to the realization that there is conflict and and there are other oppressions which afflict us. And yet, prophecy testifies to us the fact that God is sovereign, that he is able in the past to tell us what's going to happen because he has the power to bring it fast. And so we're not the victims of random chance. It's not just that I happen to wind up this way or I happen to have this particular affliction. 
Lord knows I don't know all of the reasons why particular things happen to me, but I can entrust myself fully and completely to God knowing that He is sovereign and that He does all things well. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's not a passage of Scripture that was inserted by Presbyterians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 was written by the man of God, the Apostle Paul, who tells us unequivocally that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. That He works all things together for the good of those that love Him, who are called according to His purpose. It's not that there's a mistranslation there. It's accurately rendered. It should not say that God works most things, or almost everything, but all things. Now, that gives rise to lots of questions, and we want to know the why to many of those questions. Listen, I would much rather all of this be a mystery and have confidence in knowing that God is sovereign. After all, it's not for me to understand the why of everything. I would rather all of that be a mystery, and yet I can know that God is sovereign over everything, than to simply insert my human understanding into all of this and say something like, well, you know, God's just not in that. Blank. Hurricane, tornado, illness, calamity. That's what many people in church say today. Well, God didn't have anything to do with that. I would much rather have a God who is sovereign over everything and my human mind not be able to comprehend the way that he works that all of that out than to have a God who somehow is incapable of doing something about a particular circumstance. God has never been in heaven wringing his hands saying, Oh dear, what am I going to do now? We can have confidence in a God who is sovereign. And these specific prophecies, which were clearly written about, the, about Jesus, centuries before his advent, declare to us this sovereignty of God. Specific things. Now, you know, people are around today who profess to have the ability to predict the future. You know, they've been around since before the days of tabloid magazines and newspapers. People who claim to be able to predict the future. And many of those things are, are very vague. We still get them, don't we? And those little Chinese fortune cookies. You know, you pull those things out and you read them and you think 15, 17, 43. Oh, wait a minute, wrong side. And then you flip it over. And, and, you know, you read there. You know, a great fortune will come to you if you are patient. Really? That's pretty vague. What do they mean by a great fortune? What do they mean by being patient? What do they mean? How long? Well, somebody sitting somewhere at a desk who's having to come up with these things to insert them in a cookie thought that was a good saying. But specific things. When the wise men came to Jerusalem asking where the king of the Jews was to be born, the star had given them a general sense of where to go, right? They saw it way in the east and they traveled probably hundreds of miles. And so they knew to go to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is he who was to be born king of the Jews? They didn't have to take a poll. They just got the scribes and experts there. And everybody said it was unanimous. Bethlehem. He used to be born in Bethlehem. Nobody had another answer. Nobody showed up and said, well, I don't know. Could be in, uh, could be up in the region of Dan. You know, a lot of strange things happen there. No, there was nobody who said anything like that. All of them said Bethlehem because of the specific prophecy. It wasn't something vague which came through a tabloid. Specific things said about the Lord Jesus. 
And these prophecies harmonize with the historical record of the New Testament. Um, you know, the, the writers of the New Testament didn't have to bend events and fudge on the factual reporting of them to make them fit in with the prophecy. Well, he was actually born in a town near Bethlehem, but close enough. No, that's where he was actually born because Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should, you know, be registered. He wanted to tax them. Isn't it interesting? The only reason we talk about Caesar Augustus is his remote connection to the Christmas story. Otherwise, he would just be one of those abstract figures from history. Who are the people that we really talk about? We'll get to that in a minute. Specifically, so David had to go where? Not to a town near Bethlehem, not to the same state or region so that we could say, well, close enough. He actually had to go to that specific location. And by the way, Bethlehem was not a great metropolis. It was an insignificant village on the outside of Jerusalem that had no importance whatsoever except the fact that David had come from there. And that's where Jesus would be born. And you have that over and over again with these prophecies. And these fulfilled prophecies contribute to our confidence in the veracity, the truthfulness of all Scripture. I mean, after all, if, if these things are true, if these prophecies were communicated and were fulfilled in the way that they were to the minutest detail, we can have confidence in the rest of Scripture. And so that helps us as believers to know that we're not just believing something in a vacuum, that we haven't taken, you know, some some sort of existential leap into the dark. You know, there's nothing there. I can't see a thing, but I'm going to jump and believe there's something there. No, God enlightens us in our understanding so that as our eyes are opened, we see the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of prophecy. And based on that knowledge that God has given us through his word, we rest in him alone. I'm not leaping into the dark. The light has dawned on my darkness. The light has come to me. And so I give thanks for his arrival. What we see in this passage, as we do elsewhere in Scripture, is that the arrival of the Messiah is inevitable. From the time that God, in response to humanity, plunging itself into sin by eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, in response to that act of disobedience, he spoke a word of promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is known, and here's your theological word we throw out every Christmas, proto-euangelium from the Greek, the first gospel. This is the first gospel. Once the world had been plunged into the darkness of sin, God delivered forth this word. It wasn't an Adam and Eve who said, you know, wait a minute, let's, let's, let's take these lemons and make some lemonade. No, God broke into that horrible moment with a word of promise, as he said to the serpent. He wasn't even speaking to Adam and Eve. He was talking to the serpent, Satan who had inhabited that creature. You know, a favorite of all of ours ever since, right? By sees a snake and think, oh, wow, cuddly. I want one of those. Most people are repulsed by them. It seems to be a natural thing on the part of many. But God speaks to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So all that is produced from this disobedience, that which comes from the serpent, that which comes from the woman, all of that is going to be warfare. There's going to be war, enmity. That's what you have throughout Scripture. 
is this tremendous conflict between light and darkness, between faith and unbelief, so that the famous German literatus Johann von Goethe said essentially that the only conflict in the history of mankind worth noting is the struggle between faith and unbelief. We find that to be true. And we find this prophecy couched in military terms. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Enemies have come against God's people. They had come against God's people all those many centuries ago, and that continues to be the case now. Even though Satan is defeated, we continue to face this fierce opposition. And so his arrival is inevitable, yet it is fiercely contested, just as God said it would be. Satan doing his deadly most to prevent the coming of the Christ. Why? Why is there such an onslaught against the Jews in the Old Testament? Except that Satan, if we read between the lines, in his acts of warfare are attempting to eradicate those people of God to prevent the arrival of that offspring on the scene. The biggest blockhead of all time. How can he, a created being, successfully oppose a sovereign God? But then we have to ask ourselves the question, who am I to think that I know better? Who is any of us to think that somehow we know better than to believe this story told over the course of centuries that eternal life comes down to one who has faith in the Lord Jesus. Why would I want to oppose something like that? Why would I not want to rejoice and accept, given the fact that all of God's enemies throughout the course of history have one by one fallen to the wayside and have been cast onto the dust heap of history, and the ultimate enemy, even Satan and death itself, will be cast away from God all enemies will be destroyed. And yet, this fierce opposition continues. In some degree or another, we see it in the Middle East today, in the conflict and war raging there. We see it in the opposition raised against uh, believers in the here and now, politically, socially, and otherwise. But, none of that, even to a fraction of a degree, will thwart God's purpose whatsoever. Jesus came. He's coming again. Believe it or not, He's coming. His arrival is as sure and certain as His first one was. And so, even though there is this couching in military terms, and notice, God's people are being sieged. They're being opposed. The rod striking the judge of Israel on the cheek, that's that's a way of, uh, of showing a defeat, a way in which the king of Israel or the king of Judah is humiliated in defeat. But one is coming, though he will be struck and struck low, though he will bear the sin of the world on himself and die on a cross and a horrible death and be buried in a grave. By his coming forth, he is the victor. Not the one who smites him. Yes, his victory is inevitable. His coming is inevitable. And we can have confidence in that. 
But what we also see in this is we see how something insignificant becomes significant because of Jesus. I go back again to the fact that Bethlehem was, well, the way we would put it in our own vernacular is that was nowhere. Nowhere in particular. When we think of the arrival of the Lord Jesus, the most significant place on earth at that time, arguably, was Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire, the place from which the first great superpower spanning over a significant section of the globe was governed. But he didn't come forth from there. He wasn't even born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which had been significant only because David had been anointed king there. And we heard that as the scriptures were read today when Samuel was told by God to go to Bethlehem, to Jesse's household, and anoint the one who was to be king. So, you know, at that point you could hear Samuel saying something like, Bethlehem? What, what do you now, he didn't say this, but you can hear him thinking, Bethlehem, why, why go there? Where is it? Where, somebody bring me a map. Bethlehem of Ephratah, to specify the actual one. There are actually other places known as Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephratah specifies the particular one. And he goes there. And there are some pretty good-looking candidates. But, oh, by the way, none of them is the one. The one who was to be anointed king wasn't even there at that moment. They had to go find him. He was out with the sheep. Ah, our king is a shepherd. And so David foreshadows the Lord Jesus. Bethlehem's significance lie in the fact that God chose it, reasons known only to him. He chose that place from which to bring forth the king. In the short term, David. But in the long term, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would be born there. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. Thinking of that which is insignificant, think of ourselves. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter had said essentially, You are not a people. You're a people only because God has made you so. Who am I apart from my being united to Christ? I'm just a, a collection of cells and various proteins and molecules interacting with each other. And Biologically speaking, how that can all be defined and expressed, and yet all of that passes away into nothingness. I was reading yesterday, and it has to be true because it was on Facebook, <laughs> you know, about... Uh, how some time ago that they had uh, they had discovered a, a burial spot in England and they found a corpse inside of it, which makes sense because it was a burial spot that had been wrapped in lead sheath and had been buried. And so uh, things like uh, oh oxygen and water couldn't really get to it. And they were just amazed that this corpse that had been buried hundreds of years ago was so intact. And yet, all it is is a corpse. Who was the person? They gave him a name and they guessed as to his identity, but they still really don't know. And yet, is there any significance in that? Could that person who died all those centuries ago say, well, at least I can know that one of these days they're going to dig me up and people are going to be impressed with how much of me is still here. Is that all we've got to look forward to? Or is there something more? There is something more because of our being united to Christ. 
And so God's way is to take that which is, humanly speaking, insignificant and make of us something of importance so that through faith in the Lord Jesus, we are declared to be God's treasured possession, his children. We all have this this thing called sonship, that we are sons of the living God, and we've been given the right to be called that because we have trusted in Christ. And as Jesus has come and eradicated the consequences of sin so that we may look forward to eternal life and in the meantime that we can have the peace of his presence. And how is it that God through you is achieving impossible things, seemingly impossible, and raising the insignificant to a position or place of significance? One of our own this past week, Dave Nash, who right now is looking at me because he didn't know I was going to do this, See, that's the way I get your attention. You never know what might get said from the pulpit. As we were meeting for prayer on Monday, conveyed to me or gave to me a note written by his granddaughter, Katie. Now, Dave has this practice, he said, that when he has his grandchildren down here, he takes them out shopping. Now, many of you do that, too. Maybe you do this as well, but he takes them out shopping so that they can get items for shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child. Takes them shopping for somebody else. So they have fun buying these items, putting them in a shoebox. And what Dave asks them to do is to put a note in the shoebox so that whoever the recipient of that box is, and we don't, we don't know who gets these things. We, we put them together, pack them up, and they get sent off. And only the Lord knows. And through a wonderful way of tracking, you actually can find out where it goes and perhaps who got it. But still, there's an element of mystery there. So Katie writes a note, and I'm going to read this today so that all of us adults can learn from a 16-year-old how to write a note. Let me tell you something, Katie, if you're listening, kudos to you. This is the way to write a note. Hello, from a 16-year-old granddaughter named Katie. I don't know your name or your favorite color or what food you like to eat. What I do know is this. You're 12, 13, or 14, a girl... And you are as special and colorful as the things in this box. I'm 16 and my name is Katie. I have been fortunate all my life, but that doesn't mean I don't understand pain, what it feels like to be alone, or what it feels like to need something. God has told me what I'm going to do when I'm older, even though I'm very young. God wants me to be a nurse and to go to Africa and heal people who are hurt and tell them about him. God has a special purpose for me and for you. Even though I don't know you very well, I will still pray for you. I will pray that you will know you are loved, beautiful, And special in every way. My name for you in my prayer will be Butterfly. Because there's butterflies on the shirt I sent you. I had a lot of fun picking these things out for you. And I hope you have fun opening this box. I love you, Butterfly. Katie. That's the way to write a note. You know, I don't know who's going to open that box. 
But I have every expectation because I know that God works in mysterious ways. And it is just more than likely because as I've read this note to you, I happen to know that there are two Sunday school teachers who read it in Stanton, Virginia this morning to their classes. And because of that, and it's going to happen from here, whether you intend it or not, butterfly is going to be prayed for by an untold number of people. Who knows what God might do in the life of that little girl somewhere in this world because that's the way God works. After all, what did Bethlehem have on its resume to qualify as a place for the Son of God to be born? It's nowhere. Nowhere in particular. And who are any of us that we should be called the children of God? We're nobodies from nowhere except that God has visited us and by his powerful word has effect transformation in us. And finally this. Do you know what Bethlehem means? I heard it. Somebody just whispered it. House of bread. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. House bread. God provided an extraordinary gift through an extraordinarily ordinary locale. And the qualifications of that place bear testimony to the fact that God continues to work in those who are not deemed important by the rest of humanity. But because he set his love on us, we have claim to the rights and privileges of being sons and daughters of the Most High King. And so I think in this world today of people and children who are living in abject poverty, to whom we have a responsibility to love and to provide food and shelter and all of the things that go along with our loving our neighbors as ourselves, but I, I think of little children as I can in my mind's eye picture the outskirts, for example, of Merida, Mexico, and the Yucatan there region, who have been a part of Mariah Church now for a number of years, who are not going to make the papers in their own location any more than they're going to be heard about in any of our own media. But because they heard the gospel through faithful Christians who went there to do Bible clubs for children and share the good news of Jesus, they, with tears in their eyes, surrendering their lives to Christ, are of far greater significance in the eyes of God than many of the richest, most powerful people that we could name right now without any prompting. We know who they are, whether they're on uh, Forbes Fortune 500 or whether they are simply entertainers that are before us every day in the media. They have to be important, right, because they get talked about all the time. But who are we in the eyes of God? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Little town. I may be little, but in the eyes of my father, I'm his child. You ever go to those programs when your children and grandchildren are up there in front? You know, isn't it great to be a child? You really don't have to memorize your part at all. You can go up there and absolutely mess up the whole thing, and it doesn't matter. You are the greatest thing that ever came along. And if it were up to your parents and grandparents, you'd get an Academy Award for your acting contribution. 
If you have an understanding of that, you begin to have a little bit of sense of how the Heavenly Father loves us. He's not impressed with our performance or our standing before people. We have standing before Him because we're His children and He loves us. Now, if you can understand that, you are way ahead of me. But I tell you here and now, I rejoice and give thanks for a news that is far beyond my ability to comprehend and for the one who has come, who is our peace. How still we see thee lie. And one day, in the full experience of that peace, as we give thanks for that bread of heaven come down to us, of whom we have partaken, and thus have everlasting life, we will celebrate for all eternity. May God bless you, and may God grant to us grace to receive this precious gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we rejoice in Christ our Savior, as we think of the way in which you have made the insignificant important, our minds wonder at that which you have wrought. Oh, Father, grant that we may truly be in awe that we wouldn't just observe the season because of material gain, but because of eternal reward. Rewards that belong to Christ who earned them and who graciously gives to all who trust in Him. Father, please give to us that Holy Spirit and teaching of His that would have us understand that we never get beyond this gospel, but that we grow more deeply in the knowledge of it so that our rejoicing may be all the more profound. And so, Lord, we join with Katie and pray that wherever Butterfly is and whoever she is, that you will do a work in that little one by your grace. And though it may remain unknown to us for the course of our lives on earth, may we in eternity stand in wonder and awe of the way in which you have worked in the lives of all the butterflies unknown to us now, but will be known to us there, all because Christ has come. Bless his name. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Phillips Brooks was a beloved churchman who was loved by children. They loved him. He had a rapport with children like few other church leaders had. And even when he was a bishop in his denomination, he still was not so high in his office that he couldn't stoop low to speak to a little child. And it is said that when Phillips Brooks died, and one mother in particular struggled with having to tell her daughter that her favorite pastor had gone to be with the Lord Jesus. She finally told the little girl and while the mother was expecting the girl to break out in tears she looked up with a smile and think oh mama think how happy the angels are. May God bless us that we too will be known for our faith as we sing together the hymn O Little Town of Bethlehem.
And so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen.